Welcome to the Apologetics of Jesus and Paul. This is session one, and right before we got started, I just had a great conversation with the guys who are taking this this course with me, and um, let's go ahead and jump into it, and still, uh, yeah, okay, it looks like we have a critical mass here, so let's go ahead and get into it. So this is the Apologetics of Jesus and Paul, session one. Now, in this session, we're going to talk about the what and why of apologetics, and then we're going to talk about some biblical principles of apologetics, and then we'll look at a biblical three-step method for engaging in apologetics. So first things first, who the heck am I? And what is the Think Institute? So many of you guys may already know this. You might you might know some of my backstory, but I'll just really quickly reintroduce myself. So I am the very grateful husband of Elisa and father of four kids, which you can see in the picture there. And um, we live in the western suburbs of Chicago in an area called the Fox Valley region. And I started the Think Institute in 2019, along with my wife, based on the driving idea that no follower of Jesus Christ should ever get caught flat-footed when asked what or why we believe. Now, as part of the Think Institute, we have the Think Institute Network, which is a podcast and video network on YouTube. We've also been expanding into Gab TV as well. Um, so that's all of our video and audio content. We have a blog and a website at thethink.institute where we've got resources and curriculum and things like that for people to watch and uh, and learn from. And then we've got the Hammer and Anvil Society, which is what this course is part of. That's our applied discipleship wing. And then we've got Catechids. Catechids is a small book that I wrote with 100 questions and answers to help teach your kids, help you teach your kids the basics of the Christian message. And uh, we're doing a, I'm currently working through a podcast uh, called Catechids with my own kids there um, on as part of the Think Institute Network. Um, we are under the umbrella of Crew Church Movements, Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, one of the things I always tell people is, uh, we are under a division of crew that is very non-woke. Just in case anyone is wondering, curious, or concerned about that, crew church movements is very solid, very biblical, very evangelistic. They keep the main thing the main thing, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Moving right along, the Think Institute's mission is to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. And that aspect of defending the Christian message is really what this course is all about. So let's go ahead and get started with the what and the why of apologetics. All right. Now, apologetics, big word, simply means this, the discipline of vindicating the truth of the Christian message, showing the Christian message to be True. We're going to talk in a few minutes about how the goal is to show that it is absolutely true. We're defending the absolute truth of the Christian message. And uh, we'll also talk about the origin of where the word apologetics comes from. Now, when is apologetics needed? So, very rarely 
do you start a conversation jumping right into apologetics, right into vindicating the truth of the Christian message? Sometimes that does happen, but usually there's steps to it. There's, there's aspects of the conversation that are going to come first. Let's talk about that. So imagine you're having a conversation with a friend or family member. You're talking about some current issue, uh, maybe a current event, something like that, maybe, a, maybe even a life event. And you discover a point of agreement, a disagreement rather. Your worldviews clash. There's a collision of worldviews. You as a Christian are standing on God's word. You're operating from a biblical perspective, a Christian perspective. Your friend or family member is not. And that becomes apparent in the conversation. And what, what happens then is you realize you're talking to a non-Christian. You probably knew that ahead of time, but now it's becoming more and more clear. And so what do you do as a follower of Jesus who believes the gospel is true, it's the, the only hope for humanity, you want to start sharing the gospel. And you do. You, you get into an evangelistic opportunity here, an evangelistic discussion, and your friend responds with an objection. Ah, I could never believe in a God who sends people to hell. I could never believe in a God who doesn't believe that uh, love is love or Christians are hypocrites or the Bible is not true. We've all heard the arguments. We know the arguments. Um, there are many that we haven't heard, but I'm, I'm sure that there are many that we have heard. At that moment, you've now moved from evangelism to the part of evangelism known as apologetics. You are, uh, there's been a clash of worldviews. You've started sharing the gospel. Your friend or family member shared an objection, and now you are defending the truth of the Christian message. You are engaging in apologetics, and, um, and you're defending the truth. Your goal, then, is to get back to sharing the gospel. Your goal is to get back to, the, um, to evangelism. Now, let me tell you about my most frustrating encounter and experience with apologetics. Uh, I had a friend, let's call him Curtis. That wasn't his real name, but we're going to call him Curtis. Curtis and I, oh man, Curtis and I met up over a series of weeks. He was uh, getting engaged and uh, was, was going to be getting married to my wife's friend. And, um, she was a self-proclaimed Christian, but he sort of was, but it never it was kind of shady about it. Wouldn't, wouldn't really come out one way or the other. Well, they got married, and as soon as they got married, he came out hard as an atheist, self-proclaimed atheist. And um, he and I would meet up at bars, restaurants. Uh, we'd meet up for coffee, and we would get into it. And there, there was this clash of worldviews, and I wanted to convince him that Christianity was true, and so I would unleash the evidence. And and I'll 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 never forget. We'd been meeting together. I don't know for like like eight different times, and we're sitting there at this bar in Chicago, right across from Grant Park, this really cool little bar. And he looks at me and he goes, "But there just isn't any." evidence. And at this point, I got to, I got to tell you, I wanted to just beat my head into the table because for the last, you know, eight weeks I had been giving him nothing but 
evidence. It was incredibly frustrating to hear him say that because I was unleashing evidence from history, science, cosmology, philosophy. I'd been studying the evidence. I loved the evidence and I was unleashing the evidence upon him over and over. And he just simply refused to see it. None of that evidence even penetrated his mind in any way to the extent that he even told me that there was no evidence. Now, I'll tell you, simply winning the argument was was not just my goal. I truly did want him to know and to experience the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. I wanted him to become a follower of Jesus. Yet, for all my finely crafted argumentation, he would not budge. So what the heck was going on there? Well, that day, that night, I should say, I learned firsthand that it takes more than evidence and facts and philosophical arguments to make someone a follower of Jesus. Now, if you had asked me at that time, I would have said, yeah, I already know that, but I got to see that firsthand. See, unbelief, I've come to learn, is just as much a matter of the heart as it is a matter of the head. And all the evidence in the world by itself cannot do a single thing to change a heart. Now, since that time, I've learned a lot about apologetics, about how to defend the Christian faith, and I now, thank God, by the grace of God, know that there is a much better way. See, my goal was to convince, and my motive was to get him to see the the truth of Christianity, but to be completely honest with you, I wanted to look intelligent while I was doing it. You know, I wanted to look smart. I wanted him to think of me as smart, because here he was, this very smart skeptic, this very smart atheist, And so I wanted to look smart too, because after all, if he thinks Christians are smart, maybe he'll want to become a Christian. So I wanted to look intelligent. So my approach was this. I, he told me he needed evidence. I assumed that he needed evidence and I gave him evidence, but I was giving him evidence as if he was the judge. And what did he do? He threw the evidence out and judged God guilty of not existing. So I didn't realize at the time that my problem was not that Curtis needed more evidence, but he needed to get out of the judge's seat. As a Christian, I do believe that God is the judge, but my apologetic did not really reflect that. It actually put Curtis on the throne, on the judge's bench, and I wasn't really defending the gospel and the Christian message as absolutely true, but rather the most reasonable conclusion based on the evidence. So some of you guys who have seen and engaged with my content or some other uh, uh, apologetics content that's out there in a similar vein, you already know where I'm going with this. See, what I needed then and what we all need today is an approach to defending the Christian message that honors the Lord Jesus Christ as judge, not the unbeliever, not me and is powerful to refute arguments and can be used to answer any objection by any Christian without having to go study archaeology, uh, history, philosophy, rock layers. All right, that's what I want to present today, and that's what we're going to be looking at throughout this course. And this is, this is definitely going to be a tall order. So what I want to do then is I want to look at Scripture itself the goal of this course is really to examine and to gain an apologetic method from Scripture. And in order to do that, we really need to look at 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. 1 Peter 3, 15 is the charter verse of Christian apologetics, but it really is helpful if we look at the at that one verse in its broader context. And um, 
I know we're looking at Peter here, and I know that this course is called The Apologetics of Jesus and Paul. I'm actually considering retitling it The Apologetics of Jesus and the Apostles, because it's not just Jesus and Paul who argue this way. It's really all the apostles. All right, so uh, I put the text up on the screen there. Take a look at it, and then we'll read it together. Okay, now, as we read, look at the contrast between the actions of unbelievers and the response of believers. Look how the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, tells us to give our defense in light of the total depravity of our opponents. Okay, here's the passage. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense, and in the original Greek that word is apologia, that's where we get our word apologetics from, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame." For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All right, so here we have it. The Charter Passage on Christian Apologetics. Now, the background for this passage, the Apostle Peter is writing to an audience that consists of both Jews and Gentiles. In fact, there's a lot of Gentiles in the mix here. And uh, they, they have a really interesting story here. So his audience that he's writing to, they used to worship idols. They were pagans. They were coming out of the Greco-Roman world. They were idolaters. But now they've been born again. And if you go to 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, you see he's talking to people who have been born again. They've been given new life in Christ. And guess what? Now their pagan neighbors don't understand them. And they're beginning to persecute them. Not to the point of bloodshed yet. But they're talking about it behind their back. I mean, we can imagine this, the situations and the scenarios that's hap- that are happening. They're talking about it behind their back, beginning to call them names, beginning to malign them, beginning to slander them. And there's this misunderstanding. There's this worldview clash between the believers and their pagan neighbors because they used to be pagans. And many of you can, can attest to this yourself. You've seen the same thing in your own life. But if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So these folks, these believers have been redeemed out of the world, but they're still in the world, and that is leading to conflict. Their depraved neighbors, their pagan neighbors are still running systems that they have to live in and their neighbors don't understand the change that has occurred. And the world's beginning to push back. See, it's not enough for them to simply live and let live. They're beginning to give these Christians a hard time, beginning to to make them suffer. And this is the context that Paul is writing to. So now when we get back to verse 13, we see that Peter is telling his readers something very interesting. He's essentially saying that suffering harm for doing what is good is something that ought to be rare. Who will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? In other words, you shouldn't really expect that. Why? 
because that's unjust. People people don't naturally act that way, right? Uh, no one should harm someone else for doing what is right. And yet, it is a distinct possibility. And when you're dealing with a world filled with sinful people, it's not only possible, but it's also likely. And in the case of Peter's audience, it's already beginning to happen. So Peter has to address it. Now, what's the relevance for today? Well, while all of this is true in Peter's day, certainly was true then, it's just as true in our own time, isn't it? It's totally true in our own time. Look, is sin any less of a sickness in our day? I mean, like, has sin gotten any better? Are people any holier naturally as they enter into this world from their mothers? I don't think so. Are unbelievers any less understanding, or I'm sorry, uh, any more understanding of who we are as believers and what we're all about? Aren't people just as depraved, just as sinful, just as sin-sick as ever? Do you know that in the early days of the church, the Romans called Christians all kinds of names. They called them atheists because they didn't believe in the pantheon of, of gods, you know, the Roman gods. They called them cannibals because while they didn't actually witness this firsthand, they heard stories about the Christians who would gather together and eat the flesh and drink the blood of a man. So they thought they were cannibals. And you know what else they called them? Incestuous. Why? Because they called each other brother and sister and they greeted one another with a holy kiss, just as Paul told them to. So they were atheistic, cannibalistic, incestuous people. That's That was the, the, the accusation. Those were the accusations in the first century. And while we don't have the same accusations being leveled at us today, we have, we have our fair share of insults that we're called for being Christians. You know, people accuse us of being bigoted or privileged as if, you know, like that, like being used by the modern, modern term, modern definition, um, homophobic, anti-woman, that we have blind faith, that we're immoral, we're illogical. We're called all kinds of names. We're called anti-science, aren't we? People say that, you know, faith is just something that you uh, you have when you don't have any evidence. So we have blind faith. We're called any number of things. So then the Lord's words in Scripture very much still apply. And we need to be ready to be confronted with these accusations, with opposition, and with attacks on our Christian faith. Now, on the one hand, you don't want to jump in every time you're accused and feel like you need to start fighting. On the other hand, the Apostle Peter tells us to be ready to give a defense. Now, just so we don't get things confused here, the defense is not like defending you know, merely our own good names, purely for the sake of our own reputation. Although having a good name, having a good reputation is important. But specifically, we're being accused of being all these things because we're Christians by virtue of our Christianity. So when we're vindicating the Christian message here, we're, we're, um, we're vindicating the Lord Jesus Christ and his message and his truth. So we need to be ready to defend our hope because Jesus Christ is our hope. It's been said by some old preacher that uh, even a dog barks when his master is attacked. How much more so should we bark when our master is attacked? So my goal then is I want to conv- I want to convince you of the importance of being ready for these attacks 
and the importance of being able to respond to them in a way that is not compromising the truth that we believe. So we need an apologetic method that is fully in line with the principles that we believe that are that are derived from Scripture. And so the the big idea really of this session then is this. God's people need to defend God's truth, God's way. All right, so let's, let's look at some biblical principles for apologetics. Uh, first of all, let's talk about what our motivation is supposed to be. In Proverbs 29, 25, it says that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, in um, if you go back to 1 Peter 3, it talked about how we, we should not be afraid. We shouldn't fear the intimidation of those who want to accuse us, those who want to malign us. There's this common theme running through Scripture of not being afraid of what man can do to us. Think of the verse that says, the Lord is my helper. I shall not fear what man, uh, what, what can man do to me? We must not be motivated by the fear of man, which leads to a snare in our apologetic. The reason why is because there's two dangers that come when we are motivated by the fear of man. The first one is arrogance. Arrogance is, is what wells up within us it's, it's this desire to be seen as uh, powerful, as strong, to defend our own reputation for its own sake. It's that ego rising up. And if we are motivated by fear, then uh, fear can lead to arrogance, which wants to destroy and demonize our discussion partner or our opponent. The flip side of that is that fear can lead to flattery. If I'm afraid of this person, then you know, maybe I'm afraid of, of this person because they're so smart. They've got all these degrees. They've, they, um, they've got all these credentials. They're so well-learned. And now I've got to impress this person. I'm almost idolizing the person. Do you see? I'm putting him on such a pedestal that I'm, I'm treating him like the judge and I'm flattering him. Oh, well, as an atheist, you know, you're very intelligent. You know, you've weighed the evidence. And look, neither one of these approaches is good. Fear of man lays a snare, and both arrogance and flattery are snares to the Christian apologist, to the Christian who wants to defend and vindicate the Christian message. So we got to avoid that. So instead of fear, what should motivate us? How about the lordship of Jesus Christ? That's a pretty good motivation, I think. And guess what? The Apostle Peter agrees. 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, hallow Christ, sanctify Christ. Christ. That word hallow doesn't get enough play nowadays, but it, it means to, to sanctify, to set apart as holy. And we're supposed to set apart and sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, when we sanctify Jesus as Lord, what do we do? We take him at his word. We believe his word. And then we proceed in a way that is like him. We proceed in a way that is characterized by gentleness and respect or reverence. And there's debate among the commentators but about that word reverence. Does it mean respect for the person that I'm engaging with, my opponent? Or does it mean reverence towards God? Look, any way you slice it, um, there's a proverb that says that uh, blessed is the one who is always reverent. I'm probably misquoting that. But we should be respectful towards the person that we're engaging with. And we should do that out of reverence towards God. And that is Christ-like. As we're going to see as this course continues, that is exactly 
what Jesus looked like when he engaged in apologetics. Now, what does the Bible say should be our mission? Well, first, our mission should be focused on victory. Our goal is to silence our opponents. You might even say our goal is to shame our opponents. Now, maybe you're sitting here going, man, that doesn't sound very Christ-like. You know, shame them? I mean, that sounds very combative. That's a, yeah, some of you guys are watching, you're like, heck yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. Let's go. Other people are watching like, that That doesn't sound very, very Christ-like. Why should I shame them? Well, look, this is exactly what the Apostle Peter says. He says in verse 16, he says, that those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Look, they are disparaging your good conduct in Christ. They're not disparaging you because you're being a jerk. Well, look, maybe they are, in which case we need to repent of that. I need to repent of that if I'm being a jerk. But they're disparaging our good deeds in Christ. And they're calling us bigots and uh, all kinds of slanderous names and titles and epithets because we're Christians. So we want to silence them. We want to show that Christians are by virtue of their Christianity, are not illogical, immoral, or that God is immoral, or foolish. After all, it's the fool that says in his heart there is no God. We're not anti-science. We're not anti-human rights. We're not racist, etc., etc., etc. So we want to focus on victory. We want to silence our opponents. We also want to focus on certainty. Why? Because we're giving a reason for the hope that is within us. And who is our hope? Do you know that Scripture says our hope is Christ in us? Christ in us the hope of glory. That's our hope. So if Christ is our hope, then is Christ only probably Lord? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ only possibly true? Or is Jesus absolutely Lord? Is he certainly Lord? And is that bound up with our hope? Is the certainty bound up with with what it means to be a Christian? Absolutely. So we're, we're not focused on probability. We ought to be focused on certainty. The, the third thing, the third aspect of our mission then is um, versatility. And um, you know what? I, I'm, I, on the slide, it does say 1 Peter 1.16. That should be 1 Peter 3.16. Thank you. Someone pointed that out in the chat. Thank you. Yes, 1 Peter 3.16. Um, versatility, because we need to be ready to answer anyone at any time. Again, that should be 3.15, not 1.15. And then evangelism, because we, we always need to be using our apologetic to get back to the gospel. In 2 Timothy 2.25, which is another great verse about apologetics, it talks about how uh, the Apostle Paul says we need to hope that God would quite uh, would possibly lead our opponent to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. Repentance and the knowledge of the truth. So, um, so there you have it. Victory, certainty, versatility, and evangelism. Now, if that is our mission, what should our method be? What is a biblical approach to apologetics? Really, there are two methods of apologetics. Now, that might sound crazy. Because you're, you're already thinking, well, there's classical and evidential. That's already two. There's presuppositional. That's another one. There's existential. Then there's reformed epistemology. And there's 
there's cumulative case as well. So there's, Joel, what are you talking about? There's only two. There's a lot of different methods. Yes, but they all break down into two categories. Unbeliever first and Bible first. An unbeliever first approach starts with the claims of the unbeliever. He says he needs more evidence. So you go and you take him at his word, you go find more evidence. He wants to, um, he claims the ability to argue on neutral ground, neutral territory. We're going to take the evidence, weigh the evidence impartially and come to a conclusion. There can be neutral ground between the believer and the unbeliever by that, uh, according to that view. Um, an unbeliever first approach gives philosophical arguments or evidence or, um, or, or tries to deliver an existential shock to the unbeliever, to, to shock him with the meaningless and purposelessness of life. A lot of really well-known apologists will take that approach. We'll take all these approaches. What about a Bible-first approach? In a Bible-first approach, you start with the Bible's claims as, as being true. You recognize that there is no neutrality between the believer and the unbeliever because Jesus said, you're either with me or against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And you let Scripture define and guide the encounter. Okay, now let's take a a closer look at a Bible-first approach. What are some principles that arise in a Bible-first approach to apologetics, to vindicating Christian truth? Well, Colossians 2.3 says, All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And uh, Proverbs 1, 7 and 9, 10 tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And uh, so right away, um, I see that I don't want to bring the unbeliever merely to a probabilistic belief in a God, but rather I want to bring them to Christ, to the fear of the Lord. And who's the Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ. So if I if I want my unbelieving friend to be delivered from ignorance, foolishness, sinfulness, ultimately destruction, hell is real. I need to lead him. I need to lead her to Christ. And while I'm doing this, what I can't do is I can't adopt the unbelievers way of thinking, but rather I need to expose the foolishness of, of his way of thinking. And that comes from Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, probably one of yours too, which says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. Okay, now, continuing on with what the Bible says about apologetics, what does the Bible say about our our opponent, our discussion partner? Well, according to Scripture, everyone knows God and has clear, this is Romans one twenty one, and has clearly understood God's eternal power and divine nature. Now they're getting this knowledge from creation itself. And yet even having that knowledge, they suppress the truth about God and they do not glorify or thank God. So this is the condition of every single person who lives so I'm letting scripture define my, um, my encounter with unbelievers. So what is the unbelievers problem? It's not lack of knowledge. It's not lack of evidence, but rather it's lack of worship and lack 
of gratitude. See, unbelief, according to scripture, is a symptom of a sinful heart, not a lack of evidence. Psalm 14.1 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And really simplified, it's just the fool says in his heart, no God. Uh, N-O God, not like no God with your mind, but no God, meaning there is no God. God is not relevant. Uh, God is, if God exists, you know what? He's up there in the cosmos somewhere. He's up there in heaven. He's up there in outer space. It doesn't really care what I do. I get to live however I want. That is the problem. What is the solution then? The solution cannot be to heap more evidence on someone who already has enough evidence to believe. Because if I just go and give more evidence, guess what I'm doing? I'm validating his claim for him that he doesn't have enough evidence. If all I do is I say, okay, fine, you're neutral. Uh, Here's a bunch of evidence for you. I'm just feeding into his claim. The solution instead is a presuppositional apologetic approach. Some people don't call it presupp. Uh, presuppositionalism, they'll, they'll call it covenantal apologetics or expository apologetics. I don't care what you call it. Okay. But it's a biblical approach. And what it does is it gets at the underlying core unquestioned commitments that undergird a person's thinking or their presuppositions. So what you want to do is uh, rather than heaping up evidence and philosophical arguments, you want to expose how your opponent's presuppositions and conclusions don't line up with each other. And we do this through a three-step method. Now, maybe you've heard presup described in terms of a two-step method, um, and, and you're wondering, well, where do I get my third step from? The third step comes from the fact that apologetics is intricately bound up with evangelism and is inseparable, really, from evangelism. Remember, our goal here is to lead this person to Christ. Not, not just to destroy the person. I'm vindicating Christian truth in the hope that this person will be granted repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So that's where the step uh, number three comes from. So step one, we do an internal critique of the unbiblical position. We're going to examine his, his um, foundation, his presuppositions, his unquestioned beliefs that he says he believes. And we're going to see if those line up with what he claims to believe. So one common example that I always give is if someone says that God is immoral, that's their conclusion, but they're starting from a premise, from a presupposition that God does not exist. Well, the the logically consistent entailment or implication of God not being real is that there can be no absolute standard of morality by which you could ever judge God. So the conclusion God is immoral does not line up with the, with the presupposition that God does not exist. So we're going to get more into that as we go, but, uh, but that's step one. We're doing what's called a reductio of the unbiblical position, a reductio ad absurdum. We're reducing his position to absurdity by showing that the premises do not agree with the conclusion. The presuppositions do not agree with um, what he, where he claims those presuppositions lead him. That's step one. Step two, we're going to turn right back around and attempt to do the same thing with the biblical worldview. We're going to show that the biblical worldview's presuppositions line up with the conclusion and actually make better sense of the, of the objection than the unbiblical worldview does at all. So the, the Christian position, the biblical worldview, 
not only answers the question of why God is not immoral, but makes sense of the question of morality in the first place. If you presuppose God, the God of the Bible, guess what? You have meaningful categories for understanding morality, objective morality, universal morality. We'll talk more about this as we go. But then step three is this. You make an evangelistic appeal. By the way, these steps are not always done in order. In fact, they're very rarely done in order. Sometimes you do start with three, then you go to two, and then once, and then you go back to two. It's, um, there's, there's, a, there's a dance to it. But the third step then is an evangelistic appeal. Why? Because the same Bible that makes sense out of the objection and answers it and provides the meaningful, the, the necessary categories that give it meaning is the same Bible that says that rejecting God and trying to reason autonomously, trying to live autonomously apart from him, apart from him is sinful and that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You all know where that's from, right? Romans 6.23. You should really have Romans 6.23 in your back pocket, ready to pull out at all times. I can't tell you how many times I use Romans 6.23 in my evangelism, all, probably every time. It's a, it's a one-verse evangelistic appeal. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you're going to need to flesh that out and apply it to the person you're speaking with, but that's your evangelistic appeal. That's step three. All right, now, so here we have, again, we have Romans 6.23. Okay, now, to do this apologetic, to engage in apologetics this way, you really just need two things. One, you need to know your Bible. And two, you need to know how to ask good questions. Isn't that a lot easier than going to school and studying paleontology and astrophysics? Now, I love paleontology and astrophysics. Don't get me wrong. I love that stuff, but I don't have a degree in it. I think I can hold my own sometimes, depending on who I'm talking to. But there are people that would absolutely blow me out of the water talking about this stuff. I had uh, Brian Thomas from the Institute for Creation Research on my show. The dude just, his level of knowledge is insane. I'll never know as much as Brian Thomas. Thank God I don't have to in order to defend my faith because I can do these two things. I can know my Bible and I can ask good questions. So what are some good key questions to ask? Well, here's a list of them. And I, and, and there are many more, but here's a, a good list of questions to ask. What do you mean by that? Can you give an example? How do you know that? What are the implications of that and then two of my personal favorites, maybe they're yours too, by what standard and so what? Somebody says, uh, somebody says, God commanded the Israelites to kill all the Canaanites. And they sit back as if they just proved something. You just say, so what? Let it hang. Let it sit out there. So what? What you're asking is, Given your worldview and what you claim to believe, why is that a problem? Now, I can understand why it troubles me, why I want to go back and do some, some study on that. Uh, starting from the, the presupposition that, that God is good, God has revealed himself, God never does anything wrong, God never commands evil. So I want to go back and do study, but as a non-believer, why does that bother you? Tell me more. So what? All right, now, uh, knowing your Bible, 
We want to know biblical principles, which is what we're studying today. And then it really doesn't hurt to have some good, solid biblical examples of apologetics. And that's going to be sessions two through six of this course. Biblical principles, biblical examples. Because again, God's people need to defend God's truth, God's way. And I am thoroughly convinced that the presuppositional three-step method we just talked about is the best way to do that. Now, if you want to do a further study on this, here, here are three recommend, uh, two recommendations and then one of these is an assignment for those taking the course. Uh, go on YouTube, clear your schedule, and search for, I believe it's, there's a series of videos called Basic Training for Defending the Faith by Dr. Greg Bonson, the late Greg Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N. If you don't know him, you just met your new favorite Christian apologist. If you do know him, he's probably already your favorite or at least one of your favorites. Um, and that series, Basic Training for Defending the Faith, is, I think there's a video on YouTube that's like four and a half hours long. I believe it was posted by some guy who used to be a King James onlyist, and that was what his channel was originally, but then he, he started posting more pre-sub stuff, and now there's this really great training on there. But it, listen, anything by Greg Bonson. Um, let me recommend a book to you. It's called Apologetics, A Justification of Christian Belief, I believe. And it's written by John Frame, who uh, is one of my all-time favorite authors, theologians, apologists, just an absolute genius, probably my favorite living theologian. And then finally, this is the first, um, the first assignment for this course. Go read Matthew 12, 1 through 14, and its parallels in Mark 2, 23 through 3, 6, and Luke 6, 6 through 11. As you're reading these passages, um, look and analyze what is Jesus saying? How is he approaching the, the apologetic encounter? What are his arguments? And how is he making those arguments? And really try and look for the presuppositional approach. Look for how Jesus appeals to what they claim to believe and tells them, look, based on what you claim to believe, your conclusions don't match up with your presuppositions. And then how he will present the truth and say, this is the better way. This is the consistent, um, uh, uh, internally coherent method and approach for understanding whatever the claim is and whatever the issue is. And as you do, scripture is really going to come alive to you in a new way.